You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. I want to focus in on a passage today that ends the Northern Kingdom. I want to read the whole thing uh, as we get into this. It's going to be Second uh, Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 23. So I'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll go in. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned for nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute so that he wouldn't, like a tariff, right? Paid him tribute so that there like things would be okay in the land. So we're going to go ahead and just pay taxes to Assyria in hopes that we are treated well. So that's what he was doing. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So, was that, so he, was like, he went to Egypt and said, I don't like the deal I have with Assyria. Maybe we could work something else out, right? So he went, went from one power to another power, and Assyria wasn't too happy with what Hosea, king of Israel, was doing at that point in time. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, uh, Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, placed them in Halah and on the harbor and the river Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So that's what happened. Now there's a summary. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by your servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. But, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and, be, uh, false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned 
all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they and an Asherah and they worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah, which is the southern kingdom, remember that terminology, Israel and north, Judah and the south. Judah, the southern kingdom, which is still around, right? Assyria is taken away, Judah's still around. <clears throat> but this statement is just like, and Judah was bad too. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria till this day. Pray with me. Father, as we engage in your word, we do pray that we would listen to it. We would hear it, be challenged by it, and ultimately transformed by the grace and goodness of the Lord Jesus uh, to live for you and to trust in you. We pray it in his name. Amen. So, focus is a hard thing for us. Everybody needs to be focused, but upon what and when and why is sometimes not the easiest. So you remember those shirts, maybe, you know, like I'm dating myself now, but like, and they were kind of all blurry. Yeah, they were pretty cool. Back when Massimo wasn't sold at Target. Yeah, back in the day, and they cost way more. And then the Christians had to grab it, and they'd be like, focus on the cross, right? Like, we had the same kind of, like, blurry, blurriness. But I think for anybody in this room, one of the hardest things for us to do is just stay focused on the things we know that we should. I mean, when I talk to people and I ask them about their prayer requests, they're like, just pray I could be more disciplined, pray that I could, you know, be in the Word more. It's all the same. Like, it's been the same recycled prayer request for about 10 years, and it really, all it it is is like, pray that I could do the things I know I need to do. Pray that I could be about the things that I know I need to be about. And I love that request because it does recognize the disconnect between what the Lord asks of His people and perhaps what his people always do. And the thing that we read even today is that that's generally always been the case. Everyone needs to be focused, but do we focus on the right things? Do we focus on them in the right ways? We like to focus on career development. We like to focus on uh, getting all kinds of money and cool houses and vacations and toys and things like that. We can focus on being liked. We can focus on being cool. We focus on lots. It's not that we don't have focus, it's that we focus on the wrong things. And this passage is for us, and this passage is for anyone, a stark warning of what focus or misplaced focus can do, but also a reminder of the goodness and grace and mercy of God, even in the midst of that. And we'll position all of that together as we go. So there's really going to be three things that we look at. Uh, today. We're going to look at just a reminder, kind of a historical reminder of where we've been because we've gone through centuries over the past about six weeks and we may not know that. So we're going to just kind of go, let's remember where we were and what we're talking about. Then we're going to look at just how the northern kingdom ended. 
and then we're gonna look at the way that God still brings comfort in the midst of that, okay? So we're gonna look at just a reminder of the Northern Kingdom. We're gonna go to what happened here in this passage in the end of the Northern Kingdom, those 10 tribes, and then what's the warning for us, what's the comfort God gives? And I wanna start with just a reminder of the 200 years of disobedience, because that's really what we're getting into, 200 years. So how do we get 200 years of disobedience? So here are some nerdy things that if you're a note taker, you can take notes on and look up later. Smarter men and women than I am have done this kind of work. So I'm I'm basically just reiterating to you their work. You can buy all kinds of books that try to understand how the dates and places and times of the kings worked in Israel and in Judah. But 1 Kings, 1 Kings 6.1 is an important verse for understanding Bible chronology. How do things fit together? <clears throat> and it reads like this. In the, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeb, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So people are going to use that verse, 1 Kings 6, 1, and they're going to start to build backwards, and they're going to build forwards to try and place what happened when. <clears throat> and so there are, of course, different and varying views on this in regards to which dates do you pick, and how do you time it, and what happens when and where, and they're trying to tie archaeology in and all of those things. <clears throat> in fact, I think it's next week. If it's not next week, it's the week after, but I'm, I'm giving you, Brad, you're getting your archaeology lesson. It's coming, right? So just be ready. The Cyrus Cylinder, that's for you, buddy. <clears throat> so from that date, if we go backwards a little bit, we're gonna go back to Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham. The events of Abraham's life, if you use kind of a conservative dating method, <clears throat> go from about 2166 to 1991 BC. Okay, so we're going back like to, to 2100, 1996, that's about when that is going on. You date the Exodus then at 1446 BC. Okay, so 1446 is the Exodus. Then, remember they wandered for a while, didn't they? So there were the 40 years of wilderness wandering before they entered into the land. So 1446 minus 40, about uh, 1405, 1406 is when the conquest begins. Now remember, we're counting backwards because we're getting to Jesus, right? So we're counting backwards in time. Uh, in order to do that. But the conquest, which is this phrase we use for Israel taking the land that God had told them to go to in Genesis chapter 12, the conquest is right around 1400. Now, they go through the time of the judges. Remember the time of the judges where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, nobody's paying attention, there's no king in Israel. Well, they're waiting for this monarchy to begin. And the monarchy begins with Saul around 1050 BC. So there's about 400 years that in between the conquest of the land and the beginning of the kingdom, and by when I say kingdom, I mean Israel having a king. So the group of people who have a king have a ruler. So it starts with Saul in 1050. David comes on about 1010. And then Saul, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Solomon assumes the throne shortly thereafter about 970. So we're kind of moving along. So we have Saul, David, Solomon, and we have a united kingdom, meaning that all 12 tribes have one king. But then after Solomon, remember this? After Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, God's like, you've disobeyed way too much. 
we are not going to have a united kingdom any longer. We're going to rip 10 tribes from you. And so 10 tribes become what we call the northern kingdom, which our Bibles would usually refer to Israel. For the, if you're reading kind of Kings and Chronicles, when you're reading Israel, you're reading northern kingdom. When you're reading Judah, you're reading southern kingdom. Judah is actually Judah and Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin's a small tribe. And so it wasn't really considered. Uh, like if you have a lot of kids, you often forget one, right? <clears throat> it's the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of thing. Oldest are always remembered, don't you worry. Yeah, you always remember your oldest ones. It's the, it's the younger ones that you might forget. And so they're like, I, if I were Benjamin, I'd be like, come on, you know, like, what's the deal? But Benjamin gets some play a little later in, you know, history, so it's all right. So 10 tribes to the north, this is all about 930, two tribes to the south. And from that point on, okay, from that point on, when we read about the kings and where they are, we have to remember when like their king came over Israel or a king came over Judah that we're talking about northern or southern kingdoms. So there were always kings on the throne during that time. But then, then we get to 722 BC, which are the events happening in 2 Kings chapter 7. 722 BC, so now we've had roughly 200 years of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in 722, that's that kind of final Assyrian campaign against the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom goes away. That was our passage from, that we just read. So 722, now there are multiple times that these superpowers, Assyria, then it'll be Babylon, then it's like Medo-Persia, right? Like all of these, all these superpowers are coming up around uh, Israel at that time, but Assyria is one that you begin to hear about Egypt has kind of fallen down as much, so Assyria's coming in, and they ransack and take away, not every person in the northern kingdom, but essentially make the northern kingdom vanish. Some stick around, uh, some aren't taken in, but who do you take? Like, you take the powerful people, right? Like, 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 you take the people of influence, you can leave behind, they often leave behind, like, poor folks, they leave behind beggars, like, you're, you're fine here, um, and, they, and then they, what do they do? They start to put them and put them in other spots, in other places. Why? because you're trying to essentially remove the culture. And so when you remove the culture, you, 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 put, you, you relocate some people over here, you relocate some people over there, you relocate some people over here, and the idea is like you start to then just assume, 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 and amass, and amass, and amass people. So all of that is going on, 722. The southern kingdom continues until 586. 586 BC, so that continues on. So even though there's this comment in 2 Kings 17, it's more just kind of added on, which is like, hey, by the way, the southern kingdom's no better. They just lasted a little while longer, but they still got taken in. Their captivity is Babylon, okay? So uh, that now we just went from like 2166 uh, with Abraham to 722 like that. So again, I don't expect all of these things to stick into your head, but the more we just kind of remind ourselves of them, the more comfortable you'll get with those ideas. Um, and if you ever need like nerdy books on it that not even I've read, you can have them. I, I, buy, I buy them in good hopes. And you start reading a whole book on chronology and you're like, you know what's not fun to read? A whole book on chronology. Uh, so I read the people who read the people in that regard, and I'm all about the secondary sources. I'm like, let me, just, let me just hear what people have to say about it, because the mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings is a little thick for me. Um, yeah, it's actually, I think that's actually the book title, uh, The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. Brad, write it down, or come, or come borrow mine. Yeah, my, if you, my, my pages are still stuck together from 15 years ago, so <clears throat> yeah, you have that. You have that. Um, 
But yeah, getting into Old Testament history is a hard thing for us Gentiles to even kind of grab onto because there's so much, right? There's so much to try and grab onto and go, what is happening? How's it happening? Where is it happening? But that is essentially, in the broadest strokes I could possibly paint, the movement of Abraham's call in Genesis chapter 12 to where we have come in 2 Kings chapter 17. Most of the prophetic activity is to the southern kingdom. Not all of it. John preached uh, on uh, Hosea. Hosea was prophet to the north. We had, remember we had a sermon with Elijah and Elijah was prophesying in the north. Amos has specific prophecies. But a lot of the prophecies that we read are southern kingdom prophets. Um, And that would also make sense. Why? Because they have a little more run historically and Jerusalem's there and the Messiah's coming from there. And so it gets a little, it makes some sense that a lot, the bulk of our prophetic material is Southern Kingdom prophetic material. Also, as you read about kings, Northern and Southern, there are gonna be these phrases like so-and-so was a bad king, so-and-so was a good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king. Here's an easy way to remember it. There were no good kings in the North. That there is never an explanation of a king in the North that's like, and he was good. Even the best kings in the southern kingdom, of which there's just a handful, uh, we read about some of them this week, like Josiah, right? Good dude. Um, So we read about some of these folks, and they're like, and they did a lot of really good stuff, but they didn't do X, Y, and Z, or they didn't do this. And we read that phrase, even from Josiah in the southern kingdom this week, which is like, Israel hadn't even uh, observed the Passover since the time of the judges, right? Like, like we read those kinds of phrases and God's like, you're gonna do this. And it was the time of the judges and even to the time of Josiah, they hadn't even done it. So you can understand why as we read these passages, it's a long time to disobey. It's also a long time for God to tolerate it. A whole lot of time for God to tolerate it. So. If you're still with me, we're going to continue with the sermon now. If you've checked out, because I was talking numbers and dates, check back in. We're going to go right back into it. We're going to start with Hosea, the disobedient king. We're going to look at those first six verses. Twelfth year, Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria, which is the part where the northern kingdom would be, over Israel, and he reigned for nine years. There it is. He did what was evil on the side of the Lord. Yet not as the king of Israel who were before him. Against him came up the king of Assyria, and Hosea became a vassal and paid him tribute. Now, becoming buddy-buddy with surrounding nations is already not what God wants you to do. They're not really being buddy-buddy. It's kind of like, don't kill us, please. We're going to just give you money, and you're going to be okay with us. And there was probably the idea that Hosea was a rather spineless guy anyways, so Shalmaneser was totally cool with receiving tribute from him because he wasn't going to rise up and do anything. But the moment he tried by becoming friends with So, verse 4, king of Egypt, to offer no tribute to Assyria, well, Shalmaneser had enough of that. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So the king of Assyria comes in, takes all the land, and for three years he besieged it, and then we have this statement in verse 6 about what was taken. The ninth year, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, on the harbor, the river Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Now, with Hosea, he was a bad king. He didn't listen. He made alliances with this world and then he went to Egypt to try and find a way to get out of his relationship with Assyria. And all of those things are things that God would never ask for his people to do and never want his people to do and in fact commands them not to. He's like, don't be like the nations around you. Don't live like the nations around you. Trust in me. Do what I say. Follow after my commands, my statutes, my ordinances. If you obey me, you will be 
okay, and I will protect you. Well, that was lost. And so essentially we get to, the, we get to Hosea and it starts all the way back with Jeroboam in the, at the beginning. It starts all the way back there. And they're trying to find ways to look like they obey God but really don't. And they just start to absorb the gods of the people around them and the ways of the people around them, the beliefs of the people around them. So the kings have not listened. They make alliances with this world. And we do the same thing. I mean, that's, that's the part that is so important for the believer in Christ to understand is that even though we read these things and we're like, well, I wouldn't do that. I'm like, yes, you would. The point of the Bible in many ways is to go, you are that bad off. You would do those things. Don't you dare say, oh, I'm, I'm better than that. Because you're not better than that. I was talking to a guy recently and he was like, man, like, so you're like this super holy guy, right? He found out I was a pastor and it was like the world ended for him. And uh, he's like, so like, what do you do for fun? And we're sitting around and it's like, he's like, do you read like Harry Potter? That's actually what he said. Do you read Harry Potter? And uh, I was like, no. And he's like, and, and there was a lot of profanity going around. He's like, you're probably judging me right now for everything. I was like, dude, I have enough of my own business to deal with. I don't really need to know you. Another guy at the table chimes in. He's like, that's God's job. <laughs> he goes, God will judge you. And I was like, <clears throat> so it's just interesting <clears throat> because there's this feeling that, oh, like you are a Christian or you're a pastor, you're this. Well, you wouldn't do those things. And you're like, no, 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 no. Like, let me, let me back that up. In fact, the whole reason I am a Christian is because I would and often do do those things and realize how powerless I am to do otherwise. That's, that's it. And, and I do, I'm like, I have enough of my own business and mind and heart and stuff to deal with. If I tried to spend time judging you for yours, I would be wasting all the time that I need to be working on my own heart and, and trying to be more like the Lord. So I, I, I don't need that. Uh, but it's funny because you're kind of viewed, you know, oh yeah, I've been a Christian for how long? What do you do? What do you? It's like, oh man, like you're super holy. And that's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. And so we need to recognize, even as we read about a guy like Hosea, who's making alliances with this world, he's paying tribute to Assyria, he's going to Egypt to try and be friends with them. Like, we do it. We do the same kinds of things. We pay tribute. We give our money away to things that move our mind and our hearts away from God. We give our attention to things that move our mind and our hearts away from God. We talk in ways and watch in ways and live in ways that don't reflect anything about what God would have for us to do. We are no different. So when we see Hosea, this disobedient king, yes, he was a leader, and yes, the Lord holds leadership accountable in those ways for how they lead, but 200 years of bad kings and disobedient people and idol worship is a pretty good sample size to go, we do no better. We do no better. And it's always funny to watch in culture how kind of the moral compass of culture moves, right? And y'all, you all feel this. You probably even experience this yourself where you start to go, okay, I used to think that this was okay and now I don't. Or I used to think that this was not okay and now I do. I used to think that people could live this way and now I don't. Or I think, used to think that they couldn't live this way and now they can. We have all these things that kind of shift, don't they? Over the years, they shift, you know, because we're going, well, I'm not really sure. We look around at the world around us, and we're like, well, I don't want to be seen as weird, and so I'm going to go ahead and just grab on to beliefs the world might make. And those are always moving, aren't they? They're always moving. 
But it's kind of, there's this heart behind it, which is like this skewed view of the image of God, which is like what we're trying, we're essentially trying to make heaven on earth without the God of heaven and earth as a part of it. And it's always gonna go sideways, every single time. When we try and do things in the way that we think is best, and lead people in the way that we think is best without actually submitting and surrendering ourselves to our creator, our Lord, it will always come out distorted. There's never a time it doesn't. It might come out kind of nice sometimes, but it always comes out distorted. Because he is the constant, and he is the constantly good one. So now we have Hosea the bad king, and we have Assyria as an instrument of God's discipline. That happens right there in verse six. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in all these cities. So Hosea was a disobedient king, and Assyria was an instrument of God's discipline. And this grieves me, because it happens in the church even now. We were talking about this at the elders meeting this past week, uh, with all of the abuse issues that come out in church culture today. And it's like God is, God is calling out, and he is refining, and he is bringing uh, his leaders and his church to account. He's calling them to account. And the thing that causes, I think, shame for the church beyond the fact that that's heinous and shouldn't exist is that it takes the secular world to call out the church and that should never be the way it goes. Because we follow the Lord, we surrender to him, we should be listening to him, we know his heart for us, we know then the condition of the human heart and yet it takes newspapers and reporters to actually move us to action which is the opposite of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians as the churches are being planted. And he's like, you guys should be able to handle your own business. You should be able to do this stuff on your own. You don't need to go to the courts. You don't need to go to a secular judge and a secular courts in order to figure out how to handle being together as a faith family. You should be able to deal with your business in the right way. And yet, you see, God has never been afraid of using unbelieving people to bring about his discipline in his people. He'll do it. And so Assyria comes along, Babylon comes along later, and then he even, right, this is the Cyrus cylinder part, he'll even use unbelieving kings to bring his people back into his land. And this just shows us this picture of God's sovereignty is that even if we don't think we're being used by God, we might be, right? Like like even if we would never say that God is real or that God exists, he's still using us for his purposes. You're like, wait a minute, that's not fair. It's like, well, I kind of created you, so like, like whatever. When we're the center of our world, it seems completely ridiculous that God would use us, if we don't believe in him, right? Like, well, how could he use me if you don't believe in him? Because that's not how it works, right? We don't speak things into existence, God does. And so the king of Assyria has no idea because he thinks he's just going about being the king of Assyria, doing what kings do, it's just taking over land, getting bigger and getting more powerful, getting stronger. He's just doing what he thinks he should do, not realizing that the Lord is using him to teach his people. That the Lord is using him to fulfill his purposes. That even after Assyria, and even after Babylon, and even after Persia, 
And even after we go into his silence, then there's Alexander the Great who's coming, right? Even after all of these rulers, it's funny because what does the book of, I believe, Galatians say? At the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world. Is that God is moving the hand of human history along, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's Jesus. And it was at the right time, in the right way, with the right language and the right infrastructure and the right way to communicate and the people's minds have changed, and now Jesus is here in the fullness of time, at the right moment. That God is not just concerned with like this one little corner of the world, but he's using all of it to bring about his purposes. So even Assyria... So for us, God could use this outside world. He could use your boss. He can use people who don't claim him and don't know him and would not even ever say they believe in him to bring about his purposes because that's what a sovereign God can do and does. And so he's not the genie that has to rec- you have to recognize his existence before he acts. He acts before his existence is ever recognized. He acts before his existence might even ever be acknowledged. That he uses these things. Now, God has provided what is needed. We'll read as we get into the Ezekiel passage in a few weeks. Um, I think it's next Sunday. But as we use the Ezekiel passage, we'll see that God is jealous for his name. That his people, even as they're amongst the nations, are misrepresenting him. And he's like, you know what? It's not for your sake that I'm doing this. It's for my sake. I'm not doing this because you're doing anything right or wrong. In fact, you do everything wrong. I'm doing this because I have a name and I have a reputation and you're ruining it. And so I'm going to teach the nations who I am by doing certain things that you have not done. I will give you new hearts. I will put my spirit in you. I will cause you to follow my ordinances, my statutes, I will do this work because you don't do it. And so you see really the grace and kindness of God even in that where he's like, I am so concerned about people knowing me and following me and you have so ruined it that I will do the work and make it be known. Now, verses 7 Really, 7 through 20, 21, 22, and 23 is, a, is kind of a summary of going back to the beginning of the kingdom. Uh, because They talked about Jeroboam again, when the nation was brought away. But I love 7 in, in the following verses because it gives us this point that nothing goes unpunished or unseen or unknown. But along with that, God never just leaves us in the dark. Both of those things, right? So nothing goes unpunished, but it's not like you get to the end of your life, you're like, I didn't even know. Like God doesn't give you that that excuse. So verse seven, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out out of the land of Egypt. It's interesting how they keep going back to that idea from so long ago, from 1446. So brought you up out of Egypt, but they have not listened and they've sinned against the God who delivered them and who saved them. And Instead, they feared other gods and they walked in the customs of the nations who the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places and places of worship in all their towns from watchtower to fortified cities. So everywhere you go, if you go into any city in the northern kingdom, you're gonna see ways in which people are worshiping false gods. They set up for themselves pillars of ashram on every high hill and on every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places 
They're sacrificing their own children. But look at this. Verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, by every prophet and by every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. That's the without excuse part. I told you. I've warned you. I've spoken to you. You have it. You can't walk around and go, "I, I didn't know that God wanted us to do that. I was totally unaware. Even as we read this week when Josiah in the southern kingdom gets the law because it had been like shoved into a closet full of other stuff and then the, you know, the guy comes out and he's like, hey, Josiah, I found this book. I'm not sure what it is. And, the guy, and Josiah's like, oh, this is the law. Right? He finds it. It's been, like, it's been in the corner covered in dust. And he realizes all the things that he was supposed to do that he hadn't done. And he doesn't claim ignorance He's not like, well, I just didn't know. Well, my bad, I, you know, can I get a mulligan on that? God is gracious and is kind to him because of his repentant and humble heart, but he's like, we blew it. We blew it. Why? Somebody else put the law into that closet, covered it with dust, right? Like it was sitting over there for a while. How come Josiah has to say we blew it? Because God does not leave his people without understanding of what is right and what is wrong and what he would have for them to do, ever. We are without excuse to follow after him, disobey, whatever it might be, to turn from him. He has told us the ways in which we need to live. And this is so funny because if you just ask yourself this question, everyone in this room, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, you have an answer to this question. What is something that you know you shouldn't be doing that you are? If you say, oh, no, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, you're lying. You're lying. What is something that you know you should be doing? Because God has made it clear. Now, if you go, well, I don't believe in God, well, how did you realize that it's right or wrong? What inside of you gives you some kind of bearing to its rightness or wrongness? I would argue that that is because you're created in the image of God. It doesn't take, right, uh, being married and knowing God to realize that unfaithfulness is bad. You're married and you're unfaithful. You go, regardless of your ideology, you go, probably shouldn't do that. Now, the degree to which you feel bad might change, but you also go, that's not for me to do. I shouldn't do that. Why? 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 If rightness and wrongness is totally based upon how you view it, then just change how you feel about it. You go, well, I have no idea why this is bad, so I'm going to just say it's not bad. But you can't. And the reason you can't is because something is embedded inside of you. It's kind of calling out and going, this isn't right. God has left us without excuse. Even when our consciences are seared and we are trying in every way to live against what he would have, we know. Because he has spoken it time and time again. How many times in this room, if you're not a believer, do you have to hear trust in Jesus before you finally do? 
How many times do you have to hear, live for the Lord before you finally do? How many times do you have to hear, maybe you should speak like this or act like this or change this or grow in this way before you go, you know what, it's true, I should. Because God has made it clear. That's what he wants for me, from faith to do these things. No one has it together. No one has it together. Nothing goes unseen, nothing goes unpunished, but even with the warning comes a great comfort. A great comfort. This is what I want us to end with. God is patient and Christ has worked. Now, we're reading about things that have happened before Christ, okay? So Jesus hasn't come into this world. Son of God, still eternal, still there, but the incarnation has not happened. So understanding the fullness of this, we get to look at it and handle it a little differently because the reality of Jesus coming into this world, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit, all of that exists for us. And so we can handle something like this a little differently because we recognize some things that God has done in the passage of time since then. So first, about God's patience, just Northern Kingdom, 200 years is a long time. It is a long time. So just imagine that you let friends move into your house. They just move into your house. And they rip it to shreds day after day, year after year. They treat nothing with respect. Nothing with respect. They do repairs without, you know, without permits. All those things you hate. They put holes in walls. They let their kids color all over the walls, which might be the case in every house in this church. It's a mess, trash everywhere, roaches, rats, however. How long would you let that go on before you said, get out? Two days? Yeah, two days. That's a little generous. But look at the patience and kindness of God who for 200 years watched his name be forsaken, watched his people disobey and set up false gods and false idols and watched people be led astray time and time again and he provided prophet and warning and word and he said it over and over and over again. They did not have an excuse to be living the way they did. They still did and for 200 years that continued. That's the patience of God towards ungrateful, unrighteous, unholy people. It continues further in the southern kingdom, doesn't it? Right? We go all the way to 586. He continues to watch people. Some live for him, some not. Some obey, most disobey. Setting up gods, false, false uh, idols, altars, everything there. And he lets it continue. Our tolerance, yeah, two days, prudent. That's probably pretty good. Two days if people were just destroying it. Or how about this, right? They're just going around. They steal your identity and they're racking up all kinds of debt in your name. How long before you address it? And we have credit monitoring and everything else to try and catch it the moment that it happens so we can get out of it. God's people profaning his name for centuries 
centuries. And even, now think about this, because we're gonna get into these in these coming weeks. Even as he sends them out into exile, Syria, 722, Babylon, 586, he's still sending prophets, and the prophets are still going, comfort, comfort, you will come back, you will be restored, God is still gonna work. And so even as they're in exile, he is speaking to them that he's not done. So that even in their disobedience, God is comforting and God is inspiring hope. And for us, for us, we get to see the work of Jesus and recognize that forgiveness is immediate. That Jesus cleans the house. He doesn't go, now you gotta clean this up. Let me know when it's done. He goes, done, finished. Through faith in Jesus, we get to just turn and be forgiven. And isn't that what God has been crying for centuries? Turn, 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 trust, turn, trust. And every breath that we give, that he gives to us, every breath that we take is God in his grace allowing for us to continue. For those in this room who may not know him, every breath that you take is another another cry from God to go, trust me. Trust me, who is sustaining your body even right now? With laminin, that's for you. Didn't even, didn't even put that one in the notes. <laughs> he is holding us together. And his patience gives more and more time for people to turn. So, three things. Turn to God. If you have been living for yourself and in your ways like the king, like the kings, like the nation, like any American, turn to God. His way is better. It's better. When I watch people try and live for themselves, I'm like, that seems miserable. Miserable. How are you gonna get out of that one? How? You have no concept or context or construct to to find forgiveness and to make this thing right. How are you going to find that? So for those who are just going, I don't know how to be forgiven, you turn to Jesus. And the truth of turning to Jesus, you just are learning every day after that what that really meant. (laughs) Like, you you don't have to understand it fully. I don't understand it fully. No one in this room understands it fully. And so you don't have to have 99% of the knowledge before you go because you're gonna get 1% of the knowledge before you go and then you're gonna be like one and a half, two, three, five, seven, nine. Like you're only gonna grow incrementally in realizing all that Christ forgave. So all you might need to do this morning is go, forgive me. Just forgive me for whatever it might be. For those brothers and sisters in the room who know, who know that there are things God has commanded of them to do, ways they want them to believe, things that should be at the center of their heart and know that they have given their mind and heart to other things. Reject your idolatry and turn back to the Lord. Remember what the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He cleanses. We confess, he cleanses. So just reject it. 
There's stuff I'm going even through right now in my life, talking to Courtney about it, going, I think we've forsaken a part of life that the Lord has asked of us, that we do, that it's faithful to him, and I just think we've stopped doing it. And so I'm not like, right? Like, I'm not gonna spend 15 years just being sad about it before I do. I'm like, God, forgive us. <laughs> forgive us for that. Let's get going. Like, like that, my bad. It seems like a flippant way to do it, but man, the amount of things that I have to confess day after day, I can't keep up. The things I do confess are just the things that I remember I have done wrong. There's a whole lot of things that I've forgotten I've done wrong that I totally forget to confess. But again, it's not my work but Christ's. It's not my knowledge of my sin but Christ's. I acknowledge my need. He forgives. And then for all of us, I would just say this, listen to God. Join us in the reading plan. Give attention to the things that are in the scriptures. Don't make your spiritual life and your spiritual growth dependent upon this moment and this moment alone. It'll let you down. I'll let you down. I'm a B-plus preacher on my best day, so if you're, if you're counting on me to give you what you need, it won't happen. But together, as you read and you challenge me and you fall after the Lord and I'm reading and I, by God's grace, can challenge you and we can do this together and grow up into what Jesus has for us as Genesis Community Church. But it doesn't happen without giving attention to the things that he has said. It's funny because we think rules are limiting, but rules are freeing. And I don't even mean rules like God loves you more if. I just mean it's helpful for the Lord to go, I know what's best. Listen. Listen to me. It's countercultural because culture is going, you do what you think is best. You do what you think is best. I'm having this conversation with one of my kids right now where I'm even like, sometimes you just need to be able to communicate how you feel. But you see the tension there because he wants to be obedient to his parents. So he's trying to guess what Courtney or I might want him to say. And I have to go, no, in this realm, I want to hear what you have to say. If there's something about how you live, what you should do, the decisions you should make, like if, if there's things that you know we would say no to or say yes to, that's fine. But where we go to dinner, I just want to know what you have to say. And so trying to learn how to encourage thinking and believing and feeling but also within the construct of what has God said and what does God ask and that's always our task Lord what what would you have for us what would you have for us based upon what you read what you see what the spirit's doing what you discuss in your community groups so that by God's grace we could be more like Jesus living for him and the freedom that we have rejecting our idolatry because we have the spirit, we are seeing the things that God has said he would do for his people and we get to live in those realities.